You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and we've got Charles Menvu. And uh, Charles, uh, great to have you on the program. Uh, you're professor of mechanical engineering at Johns Hopkins, specialty in wind farm uh, kind of fluid dynamics. And uh, so we'll be talking about wind energy and uh, what we should be doing in the future. Why don't you... Uh, Give us maybe a little bit more about what uh, what brought you to this study and what you're working on right now. Yeah, well, Matt, uh, first of all, I really like what you're doing with your program. So thanks for having me on. Um, and so let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I got into this uh, field because I've always been fascinated uh, with the uh, ability of mathematics to represent very complicated physical processes. And so together with uh, sort of ideas and concerns about energy in general, uh, that got me into mechanical engineering, fluid dynamics, and turbulence in, in particular. So uh, we, we study uh, fluid dynamics and turbulence, and these things happen uh, anywhere, like the air flowing around your, air, your, your car, airplanes, uh, water around ships, uh, the atmosphere flowing over our landscape, uh, mixing uh, smoke coming out of smokestacks, uh, turbulence occurs in in uh, your uh, arteries and the circulatory system and in and, 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 and our lungs, uh, uh, also exhaling droplets, uh, COVID, that's, a, that's a sort of a hot topic these days, of course. Uh, so turbulence occurs in a lot of places. And in particular, it occurs in the turbulent wind when, it, uh, when, we, place it, uh, when we place wind turbines in it, and then we can, we're able to extract uh, mechanical energy out of, uh, out, of, out of the wind, the turbulent wind. So we, we work on, in my group here at Hopkins, uh, we work on mathematical and computer models of uh, these kind of flows. And I think we've, uh, you know, we've been able to find interesting things and, and uh, so we have things to say about large scale implementation of wind energy. So uh, we've made a lot of strides as far as uh, wind farm, um wind farms producing a ton of energy out there. And I understand a number of states are up to say 40% or maybe more of their energy generated by, by, via wind. Uh, as I recall reading about say Kansas, they said had some enormous amount of wind potential. And uh, where are we at in terms of tapping the wind potential that we have here in the US and, and worldwide? Right. So, so in the U.S., it's getting close to 10%. I believe this year is about 9% of electricity in the U.S. is coming from wind. Um, the, I think Iowa and is, 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 as you said, uh, is close to 40 or about 40%. Uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, the Dakotas are, are, are having a, a, about 30%, I believe, of their electricity uh, uh, coming from wind. Uh, Texas is above 20%, I think, in absolute numbers. Uh, everything's big in Texas, so uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of wind there. And then internationally, there are countries like Denmark, uh, where on average also it's close to 50%. And I think there's uh, some months in the winter, uh, January, February, March, where they get all of the electricity from, from, from wind energy. So, and then, and so it's, uh, it's been growing much more than what people realize. And uh, I believe it, it will continue to grow uh, rather quickly. So how are we doing here in the state of California is in terms of uh, wind potential, wind policy? I know driving around the state, we're seeing more and more wind farms out there in, in various places. And uh, 
So it's it's good to see us moving in the right direction. But uh, where are we at, and and uh, how how are we going to get to where we need to be? Uh, well, I I don't know for California. I don't know the specific the precise numbers. I do know that of course in California it's a place where both wind and solar. Uh, are playing an, an increasing uh, role. Um, so the specific numbers, uh, again, I probably don't remember them for California, but um, I think both solar and wind are growing rapidly. Uh, one of the interesting things with wind and solar is that they're complementary. Very often when the, when the wind blows, maybe it's cloudy, there's not so much sun and vice versa. So if you add the two together, cumulatively, it is actually a very convenient uh, uh, constellation of, of renewable sources. So, uh, which uh, which do you think has longer, uh, who has greater potential, and what what are the costs of solar energy vis-a-vis wind energy currently, and and where is it headed? So the um, so for for wind right now, wind is uh, for onshore wind. So those are turbines that you'll build on land. It is currently uh, cheaper. It's in fact right now. Uh, probably the cheapest form of electricity. Um, solar is still a little uh, more expensive. Again, it depends, you know, what scale, whether it's rooftop or large-scale uh, facilities. So, so it really depends on the details. But overall, I would say it's still a little higher. But the, the curve, solar, has been coming down very, very quickly. And so I, I do really believe that the, the future is, is one where uh, it's not one or the other. And, you know, everybody in, in energy will tell you that you need a portfolio of combinations. But in particular, I believe wind and solar go very well together. Uh, um, and, um, and so I think ultimately, I believe that uh, probably they both would probably be equal participants in, 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 in total renewable energy. So I have I have some ideas, for example, that uh, that you know we we can get to hundred percent renewable between solar and wind uh, much more quickly than people realize. But I do believe it'll be roughly half and half. Okay, um, and why don't why don't we go to that and tell us how you think we can get to hundred uh, percent solar and wind, and what's the path? What's the time frame? Uh, I, I would imagine we're going to have to have a a revolution in battery technology in order to store the solar and wind so that we can use it when uh, on days when it's not sunny or when the wind's not blowing. Right. So I, I think there's a number of different uh, storage uh, technologies. Again, that's not specifically my area, but uh, there, you know, uh, batteries in terms of sort of chemical storage is, is one. There are also mechanical storage options where you would, uh, for example, you could have under underwater big uh, tanks, concrete tanks that you pump uh, full of uh, water uh, at, at great depth when you have electricity, and then you and then and then you let the water in uh, from the sea. Uh, if they're submerged, uh, you would let the water back in uh, uh, when you need the electricity. There's uh, there's uh, uh, hydrogen, so you could generate hydrogen uh, to, as as a means of of, of, of storage. Uh, uh, then combine it with fuel cells and so on. So I think in terms of storage, there certainly is a, a number of options. It's growing in terms of distributed storage with our electrification of the, of the transportation system. I think a few years ago, nobody would have thought we ha- already have so much storage. Uh, people have their 
electric vehicles uh, in their garage. That is that is a storage. It's just distributed and, and a little messy, but it's uh, it's there and it's it's growing rather rather quickly. So that, but then also in terms of uh, you know what to what to do uh, when there is just no sun and no 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 uh, no wind. Uh, that small fraction of the time, maybe we do turn on the generators and the and the gas turbines and so on for for small periods of time. I think having having sort of a safety uh, amount of traditional fuel based uh, electricity and, and power generation is not it's not that's not the end of the world, right? If we if we have a little bit of uh, leftover that needs to be supplied from traditional sources, it's that big bulk amount of power that needs to be replaced with renewables. So what's the time period that you see kind of most optimistic, you know, medium and, uh, you know, kind of slow. If we, if we go slow, go medium, go fast, what, what are our kind of time periods? Yeah. yeah. Go fast. I think by 2050, we could be hundred percent renewable, uh, uh, medium and slow. Uh, uh, again, there's all sorts of projections and I, I probably it'd be probably uh, dangerous for me to, uh, to to, uh, to make too many projections and and while we're talking about numbers and projections, I should maybe for your listeners uh, let you know. Of course, all these are my own opinions and don't represent uh, you know Johns Hopkins official uh, policy and all that that sort of thing. So I, I did want to mention that disclaimer. Well, you know you're on a show with a lawyer, so naturally you, know, you <laughs> got to have your disclaimers in there. But uh, um, in terms of of cost of of power for uh, onshore wind and uh, versus offshore wind, which which is uh, cheaper, and and what do you see as the future of offshore wind? Obviously, we we have that potential here in California, and some of it is starting to roll out. I guess uh, some of us have concerns about uh, putting things in the ocean, and you know, potentially getting in the way of our views, but also you know, affecting sea life and that type of thing as well. Yeah. So, so I, I see certainly there's great potential offshore, uh, certainly in California and on the West coast, it'll have to be, uh, uh, in deep, deeper water. The, the West coast, uh, waters are very deep. And so we're talking about probably floating wind, wind farms, floating turbines that then can be placed at much bigger distances from this, from the, from the shore. So all the sort of the near shore issues don't really arise. So I do see a huge potential for offshore, uh, floating, uh, especially on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America, and uh, my guest, uh, Charles Menvu and uh, Johns Hopkins, and talking to us about wind. And as we can say, the answer is blowing in the wind. We'll be right back in just a minute to uh, talk more with the professor and uh, about wind here in California and around the country. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. My guest uh, today, Charles Menevo, uh, 
professor at Johns Hopkins at, in mechanical engineering. Uh, just wanted to uh, turn our attention to a question about energy return on investment and whether or not uh, wind kind of compares to uh, fossil fuels and other forms of energy as to whether or not it's a good investment for us and the economy in the economy. Yeah, yeah, Matt. So the 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 energy return on investment, EROI, I guess it's it's uh, how much energy did it take to build the wind turbines, the wind farm, compared to what the total amount of energy it will generate over its lifetime. Obviously, you want that number to be much smaller than than one. If it was one, it, it, we wouldn't uh, you know, we would get any net benefit from uh, from an energy perspective. And so that's been studied over the last several years quite a bit. And there actually wind, uh, according to a recent uh, paper, uh, well, not so recent, about 10 years old in renewable energy, um, wind is about uh, 1 over 20. In other words, it takes about 1 20th of the energy uh, to build the turbine uh, than what it will generate over its, uh, its lifetime. So this, this includes all the metal processing, the forming, the transportation of the blades to the site, everything everything uh, included. Uh, that is uh, that is quite uh, beneficial, actually. In the same paper, they uh, the nuclear is the next best one at about fifteen, and uh, but then others, uh, solar is about five to six, according to this uh, this study, and and coal is eight, and so on and so forth. So you know, it takes a lot of energy and and fuel to to for these other sources of energy. So so wind is really uh, quite uh, uh, positive. It's a, it's a good investment. Well, that, uh, that would argue that wind is the most efficient and uh, effective way for us to power our, you know, our economy. I guess the, the question is, why not, uh, why not put up more wind and how are we doing that in terms of private wind farms versus public wind farms versus utility wind farms? Um, are all three part of the equation and which, which of those do you think is the most effective? effective and efficient way to utilize wind power? Yeah, I, I, I think the, uh, I, I mean, the answer to the, the last several quest, the items is really, we need all of those, right? So, so, and then depending, you know, public versus uh, private will depend on the local conditions, the economy, you know, what, what, what land or, or ocean surface is being used and so on. But you, you mentioned something quite interesting, which is uh, important, which is uh, what, what does it take to power the economy? And, 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 and this is a number, something that I, I did want to perhaps mention to your, to your listeners. So the U.S., the entire energy consumption uh, is uh, three terawatts. So that's a three with a one, a 10 with 12 zeros. So that's how many watts on average we require. So if you divide that by 300 million people, so there's roughly 300 million people in the U.S. And again, my numbers are very approximate, uh, and so don't check the details. You get to 10,000. So you, you take, uh, you take a 3 tera divided by 300 million, you get to 10,000. So that's 10 kilowatts. So you and I, everybody in the U.S. is using 10 kilowatts all the time. This includes transportation, uh, uh, airplanes, uh, power uh, at home, industry, everything. And what does that mean, 10, 10, uh, 10 uh, kilowatts? What does that 10,000 10, watts mean? It means that you're lifting 2,000 pounds, three feet off the ground every second. So in other words, to power our economy, you talked about powering the economy, it takes every citizen, everybody in the U.S. right now, 
24-7, you're lifting 2,000 pounds three feet off the ground. So that's, uh, you know, 2,000 pounds is like half a car or a male bison or, or something like that. So that's, that's what it takes for the economy to function. It's a remarkable number. That's, uh, you know, it's a lot of work, but uh, that's what it takes. So, um, yeah, so we need, uh, as you said, we need uh, a lot of turbines. We need, uh, we need all the solutions uh, together. Uh, but again, you know, counting that right now it's 10% of the electricity. Uh, if you multiply that by 10, it would be 100%. And so 10 times more than what we have now is not, is not difficult to imagine. Uh, you drive through the country, there's some wind farms, but if it was 10 times more, we wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily... Uh, uh, be shocked, and, and then we'd be done So for the electricity. And then another factor of three for everything else. And again, remember, I, I'm saying half of it would be solar and half wind. So we really talk about a factor of 15 maybe for wind, and it's doable. Well, it, it seems like it's moving in that direction. Uh, in terms of, uh, from a public policy standpoint, do you believe that uh, what the Biden administration is currently is doing uh, is helping roll out uh, wind uh, technology faster and, and, you know, kind of moving this in the right direction? Uh, or is, are there other things they should be doing to kind of move this more quickly? Right. I think the, the onshore wind is already cheap enough. It can, you know, it can certainly live without subsidies and it just, it needs to be allowed to continue to grow. Uh, again, the utilities, they really want to install this and get, get wind energy. So that's, that just needs to be allowed to, to continue. Maybe it can be accelerated a little bit. The real, uh, I think the real point where, where more is needed is offshore. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, for the, for the East coast, the turbines are kind of planted on the ground and, uh, and that's uh, kind of a, uh, 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 um, uh, well-known technology. They use this in Northern Europe quite a lot. For the West Coast and further away, we really do need uh, floating wind turbines. And so that there's more research and work that needs to be done for, for that, uh, how to synchronize it with the electric grid transport, the electricity from offshore and so on. So there's a lot of research questions that people are working on and, uh, and more is needed. Um, but uh, again, I do. Yeah, the current policies have been uh, uh, positive for offshore development, and that's being pushed. So it's certainly in the right direction. Of course, uh, one worries a little bit about uh, about uh, more drilling now with what's happening in, in Eastern Europe and so on. But the, those are those are hopefully temporary things. Right. In terms of uh, the offshore wind potential, based upon what is known, uh, like on the East Coast. What is what's the ratio of offshore wind potential that we should be looking at uh, versus onshore wind? Uh, I think again, those specific numbers uh, will probably depend, but it could be it could be much bigger. So it you know it could be three four times as as as, as high as uh, as the onshore, uh, just because there's much more you know there's more space there, uh, and uh, especially if we can make them floating, then they can you can place them very far away. Uh, you can distribute them. Um, you could imagine, you know, floating wind turbines generating hydrogen and then occasionally ships passing by and refueling or taking the hydrogen back. Or There's many combinations of things that could be envisioned. And there's a lot of very smart people working on a lot of these options. That's very exciting. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of the hydrogen technology because I have a hydrogen car. So I... Um... So I'm very interested in creating green hydrogen, which would be hydrogen created from wind or solar. So what you're talking about is that we could have 
a, a lot of green hydrogen, which could power our vehicles more effectively, as well as trucks as, and trains and airplanes and all of it could be powered with hydrogen, which quite frankly, I see as a, a kind of a better fuel source, a cleaner fuel source than batteries, because um, the mining that it takes to to build the batteries and uh, maintain them is is pretty substantial. And uh, the disposal of those batteries is going to be a bit of a problem when we have a billion electric vehicles. Right, right. Yeah, this is this is correct. I, I, I agree with that. Again, uh, it is important to imagine that this stuff is going to be scaled up to large scales. And then it's important to ask the kind of questions that you're asking. You know, if, if we take, for example, wind and multiply by 10 or, or 15, what we have now, what does it mean in terms of, uh, you know, environmental impacts, uh, batteries, uh, and, and so on. So we need to think about, you know, we need to think like engineers, scale things up and put the numbers there and then optimize. And there's uh, good solutions for these. Right. In terms of uh, one of the things that uh, you sometimes hear about uh, wind technology, uh, people who are, who are poo-pooing it a little bit will talk about the death of all the birds that are uh, coming from wind technology. Uh, do you, uh, what's your response to that? I, I think it's, uh, it's as usual, you know, this is an impact that the turbines have on the environment and it needs to be regulated and optimized. I, my understanding is, for example, there are some real concerns for migratory birds that happen to pass by a wind farm, for example. So then the approach is to, is to uh, slow down the turbines during those times where we know that the migratory birds are passing by, for example. So, so these things need to, need to be mitigated, that the damage needs to be mitigated and optimized. The, uh, uh, a smart uh, regulation and optimization. Of course, you know, if you put things in perspective, the, the climate change that's, uh, that's avoided uh, using wind turbines is, uh, is much, much uh, a better option than, than fossil fuels that's going to have a much bigger impact on a negative impact on, on, on birds' future and, and ours uh, as well, to be frank. Right. And of course, uh, I had read some statistic that house cats kill more birds than, uh, than all the wind turbines combined. So that um, is, gotta... that, that's, that's correct. And of course, now you got to multiply though by 15, what we have now thinking, thinking ahead. But I, I should mention that the, the, the Audubon Society of America, for example, is a strong supporter of wind energy. They've done the math. They, they say there are some downsides, but overall for birds, it's, uh, it's good. Okay. Well, uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America. My guest, uh, Charles Menvo uh, from Johns Hopkins, a professor in mechanical engineering. We'll be right back to talk more about uh, wind and how we can help uh, you know, decarbonize our economy. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and uh, we've got Charles Menvu, uh, who is a professor at John Hopkins, as a guest on the program today. And want to talk to you, Charles, about how does wind energy actually work, and maybe you can describe it to the listeners so that uh, they have a better understanding. Great. Yeah. So, so actually, wind energy is solar energy. Uh, some people might not realize this, but it's actually solar energy. So you have uh, where the entire atmosphere of the planet is, is working a little bit like a heat engine. So a heat engine is something where you have a gas or typically it's a gas that's in, in, in a piston, for example, we're used to it in our combustion engine. 
you add heat to it, it expands, and then you have essentially this transformation of heat into mechanical energy when something moves, uh, something big moves. And so in the case of the Earth, you got different parts of the planet are being heated differently, uh, night and day or near the equator, way closer to the poles, uh, heated differently, and that expands and contracts the air, which makes it move, uh, uh, and then it gets deflected and moves horizontally. The Earth is spinning, so the wind gets deflected and so on. But ultimately, there is this, uh, the, the, this motion of air is uh, is uh, is what uh, what the source. This is really the source of, uh, of of wind energy, and it's moving relatively unperturbed from the ground at heights that are about let's say uh, let's say a mile above the the ground, and then below that it's what's called the atmospheric or the planetary boundary layer. This is a region of the flow where the flow feels the surface, and so now it, the this wind that's moving in one direction is feeling the the ground and different types of surfaces, whether it's a forest or the, a smooth ocean or, or an urban canopy, is going to interact with the ground differently. And, um, and so that creates turbulence. And that turbulence, very much like when you mix cream and coffee in, in your mug and you generate these nice billows and so on that you can actually see in the air, you don't see it, but it's still happening. And that mixing mixes the kinetic energy, which is the, essentially the movement of air above at this you know, mile high, it mixes it towards the surface. And so you have this flux of kinetic energy downward towards the surface. And it is that, that uh, if we now put a turbine in, we extract the power. But if we didn't put turbine in, all that energy is going to be dissipated into heat anyway. So in other words, that turbulence, that churning of the fluid of the air is generating, ultimately it's generating heat through friction. So that little bit of heating of the air due to the friction and that energy is, so to speak, lost. And so what we're trying to do with wind energy, we're just deflecting that power that we extract from the turbine. That would have been dissipated anyhow. We take a little bit of it, we borrow a little bit of it, and we transform it into, for example, electricity. And then it goes into a light bulb or your electric motor, your, 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 your vehicle, and ultimately it ends up in heat anyway. So all we're doing is you know, deflecting and using a little bit of it along the way. Well, I'd ask you a couple questions regarding that. One is, is the use of uh, wind energy through turbines, is it kind of uh, disturbing the natural flow of, it, of the wind such that it would have potential adverse effects? And what is the total potential uh, that wind energy has? What percentage would are we harnessing now and what percentage would we be harnessing if we got to you know, 50% or whatever of our power needs. Right. So the, um, the, the, the short answer to the first question is yes, indeed. This, uh, you know, this deflection of energy uh, as we extract it for, uh, through turbines from the atmosphere, uh, in fact, does have an effect on the atmospheric boundary layer. Uh, there's, um, there's no free lunch, especially if we're talking about massive uh, amplification of the amount, right? So I'm talking about a factor 15 of where we are now it will have a small but perceptible effect on the details of the turbulence and the mean velocity profiles that uh, we would have, let's say, let's say downstream of a wind farm, there will be some effect on the structure of the, of the wind. And that's it, there's no, there's no free lunch, uh, but there are uh, meals that are healthier for you. So uh, somebody telling you that there's zero impact is, is, not, uh, is, not, is not telling you the truth. So there is a small impact. 
And uh, I should say, maybe we can talk a little more about that, but uh, essentially through, uh, through engineering research and physics and com computational fluid dynamics, which is the kind of research that we do, we are able to quantify and essentially predict what that effect will be. And then we can compare it with the effects that uh, burning fossil fuels would have to generate the same amount of energy. So, so that's where, where it gets down to the numbers and we can compare one with the other. And, you know, and, and a short answer is there will be an effect, but it's going to be much, much smaller than the equivalent effect you would have burning fossil fuels. So what is the effect that we're feeling right now based upon the wind farms that are just currently in place so that we yeah. can measure that? Right, right. So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's in fact, an area that, uh, that is quite fascinating these days. So there's there's a, uh, something that's called the wake. So that's what the flow that exists behind an object. So we're talking about the wake behind a wind turbine. You might be more familiar uh, with the wake behind airplanes. So when you hit turbulence uh, and uh, you hit what's called wake turbulence, if there's a big airplane in front of you and you're behind it, you might hit the wake of that airplane. That's, uh, that's not a, a nice thing. And, and on, 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 uh, on airports, they try to avoid that, uh, the spacing the air, air the takeoffs uh, every so often. Uh, so then there's, for us, there's wakes behind each of the turbines and they agglomerate and accumulate. And then you have something that's called the wake behind the entire wind farm, which is a region downstream of the wind farm where the wind is, uh, is blowing a little less, less, less uh, fast. And so this has become, uh, I guess uh, you're interested in the, in the legal aspects, uh, this has become quite an issue in, I, I believe, offshore Northern Europe, where they build one wind farm uh, in the ocean, and then they build another one, let's say, 10 miles downwind of it. And, and they thought they would have these winds, and now it's 5% less windy than they thought it would be because of the wake behind the entire wind farm. And so, uh, so there are these kinds of effects where the, the mean velocity that you get is a little less than what you thought it, would, it, it, it should have been. And then the other effect is that the turbulence has increased a little bit. There's a, it's a little more choppy. I, my understanding is uh, pilots don't like to fly over, over wind farms. It's a, it's, a, it's a little more choppy. I'm talking about small airplanes. Of course, the big airplanes go much further up. But. So those are the two, the two effects. Um, um, Do we see any effects on weather or anything uh, of substance there? Yeah, so uh, weather is the sort of uh, thing where uh, I think right now we're not there yet. If we, you know, if we got all our energy from, um, from wind, there, you know, possibly there could be a small effects. Um, there have been, there have in fact been people who've studied this, uh, putting wind farms, gigantic wind farms into climate models and have run simulations over 100 years and say, for example, you know, what was, what is the climate going to be in hundred years, if we had, let's say, all of North America covered with wind farms, of course, no, no, you know, we'll, that's not what we're talking about. But let's assume we did that. Uh, what would be the the signal? Can you see it on the on the temperature signal, for example? And and there's a, they came up with some numbers about the temperature difference that is a, that is a, that is about I think they concluded it was about a fifth or so of the temperature difference you would get from burning fossil fuels. But there was a signal in the temperature difference. But it was cyclic, so it went up some month and then went down some other months, and uh, and during the year it sort of uh, averaged out. Uh, whereas uh, fossil fuels, of course, is cumulative, right? We do it hundred years, we're going to get this much CO two, and then uh, another hundred years it'll be even more CO two. Whereas this this effect is cyclic, but there is a small effect. Well, it's uh, it's good to know that the research is being done, and and also good to know that the effect is not uh, as dramatic as putting 
that amount of carbon into our atmosphere. What type of work are you doing with uh, computer simulation and fluid dynamics to uh, to work on these issues? Yeah, so so it it turns out that um, you know we're we're in the middle of this tremendous transformation, right? So this is a massive re reengineering of our infrastructure. And unlike last time we did it at large scale, let's say with the highway system or, 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 or going from horses to cars, this time we can actually simulate and, and predict a lot of things uh, with computers. Uh, we can sort of build these virtual realities of, uh, of things like what I just mentioned with uh, plastering the entire North American continent with wind farms, for example. Uh, and uh, so that, that developing the mathematical models that go into the computer codes that run these simulations uh, that's what we that's what we do research on. Uh, we've been very well supported by the Nas National Science Foundation. Their fluid dynamics program has uh, has really supported uh, a lot of very fundamental research. And to give you an example, the kind of research that we can do uh, because we're academics, we're we're at universities. People often ask me, "Oh, you work on wind energy, uh, so can you help company A, you know, X Y Z to develop a better wind farm to place at at so and so location?" Well, that's very specific. I, I'm not necessarily interested in, in that particular case. Uh, instead, we've uh, been simulating the, for example, the infinite wind farm. What would happen if you had a, an infinite wind farm that's uh, just infinitely big? How, how would that work? That's the kind of uh, questions we can run computer simulations on. And it is the insights we got from those kind of simulations of kind of academic problems, but uh, that, are, that, that are now helping us to understand what would happen when we do these massive, large-scale deployments of wind energy? And the results are really interesting. Well, uh, certainly that is part of what we need to do because the last time we uh, rolled out major energy sources with coal and gas, uh, there were no studies, as you said, and and uh, they weren't thinking about what would happen downstream. And if they had known that, they might have taken different public policy, made different public policy decisions to prevent the catastrophic effects that we're looking at now. So uh, kudos to you for the work that you're doing to, to uh, make sure that we don't run into a similar problem down the road and say, oh, geez, if we'd only known that wind was going to be this bad, we wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have you know, subsidized or whatever. Uh, so um, we're going into break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America, and uh, we'll be right back in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Charles Mian Mambu, uh, Mianvo. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Charles. Uh, my French is, is choppier than my English. Um, so, Charles, I just want to talk to you again about the research that you're working on right now, and what are the res what research projects you're looking at doing in the future to address wind energy and its effects on on the environment and, um, and the economy going forward. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the a topic that we're actually, we have a graduate student uh, with a colleague uh, we're supervising, uh, we're working on is, uh, as I was mentioning, this issue of floating, floating wind farms. So uh, imagine you have a large wind turbine that is floating on some platform. So now you got the waves, you got this turbine that's bobbing bobbling sort of forward and backward, uh, it's going to generate a wake that's also sort of going to meander up and down, perhaps correlated with the waves. 
Now, the wind also feels the waves and, in fact, sometimes drives the waves. So there's all this coupling now going between the wind, the structure, the turbine itself, and, and the wave field. And all of that is going to generate fluctuations. These things are going to oscillate. And the power production that the turbine is, is, uh, is outputting to the electric grid might also fluctuate based on all these things. So we're, we're developing better mathematical models to be able to predict how, how that's actually going to work. And so that this is, these are you know, information that we can uh, provide the electrical engineers who are, who are, who are working on the generators to, uh, to, to see how to control things uh, so that these things can be you know, put into the electric grid uh, more effect- effectively. So what percentage of uh, our power is, is being generated from offshore wind? Um, I know in, they've got, I think, more of it in Europe now. Um, and how long has it been uh, in pra- putting this into practice? Yeah, so I think uh, to some approximation, the answer in the U.S. is zero. Uh, there, is, there, there, is now, there, there are two, but there's really been one uh, working uh, offshore wind farm uh, of uh, Rhode Island. It has six turbines. Uh, that's the first uh, case of the U.S. offshore uh, wind, uh, wind energy, uh, the, the sort of the entry into the market. I understand there's one being built uh, uh, close to completion off the coast of Virginia. There's huge projects uh, planned and in and, 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 and various stages of planning and, and, and design uh, and authorization uh, off Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York. Um, and there is, um, there is, uh, there's a lot of interest in, in, in that. Uh, so, but right now, the, the, again, right now the percentage is, is very, very small. But uh, the potential is huge, again, because there's so much uh, surface area. There's so much ocean. So, again, I think uh, I'm, I'm a believer in these large, large wind farms that can stretch for large distances. And because, again, that's what we're going to need. Remember, we need to, to lift a, a bison uh, uh, three feet a second, uh, 24-7, everybody. So it's, uh, it's a lot we need. So, um, yeah. So, but right now it's not there. In Europe, it's... Uh, I think there are, certainly Denmark, I think the majority of their wind power is now offshore. Uh, uh, the UK has been building gigantic offshore wind farms. Um, so there the percentages are much higher. Uh, but in the US, again, the potential is huge. There's, it's a whole industry now. There's something called the, the Business Network uh, for Offshore Wind, BNOW. Uh, we, we, we work uh, quite a bit with them. Also, they, they are uh, pushing uh, and, and advising a lot of companies. There's a lot of transportation, logistics, uh, manufacture, all the sort of offshore stuff that uh, comes with it. Um, so there's a lot of enthusiasm in that, in, that, in that business. Well, that's pretty amazing that Denmark is getting most of its wind power from offshore. I, I didn't realize that any country had advanced that far in the offshore wind uh, area. Yeah, yeah. How long have they been doing it now? Uh, I, I, I guess the, the, the push has really started in the 80s, um, uh, and uh, I guess the turbines have gotten a lot bigger. So they, they started off with small turbines, and now we haven't talked about that, but, you know, the, the turbines uh, right now, they're gigantic, right? These are huge machines. They, they're, they're sort of uh, bigger than, this, you know, much bigger than the Statue of Liberty now, the, the, newest, uh, the newest ones. Uh, so you're, t- you're talking about gigantic machinery. They, they have grown. Um, so in Denmark, uh, uh, yeah, they, uh, they've, they've been doing it for maybe two, two three decades. I, I work quite a bit with uh, Danish Technical University, DTU there, who've been pioneers uh, over the last few decades. Um, 
maybe I should I should mention since you're in California, I think the the very initial uh, and the Danish say that too. The the aerodynamics of the modern wind turbine really was started in the 70s in Southern California with the sort of the aero, aeronautical knowledge uh, that that was uh, present in, in, in Southern California. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, companies and so on, a lot of know-how in, in aeronautics was translated into wind energy to get it started. And now it's, uh, now it's, a, it's a big business. Well, it's uh, pretty amazing that they're talking about uh, wind turbines that are as tall as the uh, Statue of Liberty. Um, how, many, how many of those is it going to take to, say, power Denmark or how many do they have out there? I mean, it seems that's well, I, can, I, I, I did the quick calculation. So for the U.S., uh, again, for Denmark, I don't know, but uh, the, for the U.S., if we wanted to get the entire energy, so not just electricity, but transportation, industry, everything, everything. So with no solar, it would take two million, roughly two million of those, uh, those turbines, um, which sounds like a lot, but if you start dividing and, and thinking about how many, you know, how many ships and airplanes and cars we're able to build uh, in no time, uh, it's, uh, it's not unreasonable. Right. And how much uh, area would that take up if, if we were to, to do yeah. something like that? So that's, that's, the, that's the crux of the, of the, that, that's the, that's a big question. So if we wanted to build a single wind farm to take care of everything in the U.S., it would be a square I think again, don't you know? Don't quote me too much on on the very detailed numbers. I'm a little, you know I'm very hesitant to put numbers like that out there. But let me do it anyway. It'd be a, a 700, uh, roughly 700 by 700 miles square. So now you you got to take the square and chop it into smaller squares and put some squares and in uh, in off a lot of squares offshore on the east, the west coast, close to the urban centers. You put some of the squares or rectangles over Texas and Kansas and Iowa and so on, and, and, and we, we can get there. Remember, for onshore, certainly, uh, it doesn't mean that you're covering the entire surface, right? Farmers love the, the wind energy because they can still, you can still have your cornfields and the cows uh, there together with the wind turbines, and, and they get a bit of the revenue from the, from the operators. And it's, uh, so that's not, it's not land that's, uh, that's, that's sort of covered. You don't want to put them close to houses and, 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 and urban centers because that, that, is, that is counterproductive. That is not good. But uh, far from urban centers and, and houses is no problem. Uh, well, it kind of common sense, it seems like it would be challenging to put one in an urban center, but maybe you can tell us uh, if what other effects it would have on an urban center um, other than kind of being unsightly. Yeah, yeah. Well, the there is the issue of the low frequency noise. So if you stand next to a large wind farm, wind turbine, you'll hear sort of a whoosh, whoosh every every few seconds. There's this sort of mm-hmm. uh, whoosh uh, sound, and if you listen to it too too you know too long, if your house happens to be there, I think uh, it is uh, it's not uh, it's not that pleasant. I think you then you sort of then there's a bit of the the light flicker. So even even if it's a little further away, if if the you know if, if it uh, modulates the the light that you see, this sort of periodic motion is is apparently not very pleasant. That I haven't I haven't seen that, so I, I don't know about that. But um, and then uh, yeah, and then and then uh, again. So those are the big ones. I think some people are thinking you know on the roof of buildings you could put. Uh, Vertical axis, smaller wind turbines to generate a little bit of power uh, for for very local needs. So there's there's other types of wind turbines that that are uh, more adapted for small scale implementation, and those could also play some some role in, in urban centers. 
But, uh, you know, for suburban and urban uh, uh, in, uh, installations, I, I'm you know, a big believer in, in rooftop solar. Uh, that's just a terrific idea to complement uh, uh, things. What's the, what's the cost uh, reduction curve that you've seen in wind over the last uh, 10, 20 years? And uh, what are, are we likely to continue to see uh, cost savings in, you know, kilowatt per hour uh, generation? From yeah, so my, yeah, so my understanding is that right now the utilities for onshore wind, they have to pay between two and four cents uh, per kilowatt hour, which is a, you know, that's a far cry from the 20 or 30 cents per kilowatt hour just a few decades ago. So that, that has come down tremendously. And, and as, as everything else, you know, it's a massive implementation, good research, uh, good technology. Um, I, I don't think the onshore, you know, it's already cheaper than the, the alternative. So I, I don't think the pressure there is, uh, is very big to keep it going down. And I, it might not go down much more. Now, other costs like transportation and, uh, and uh, transmission is, uh, is, is larger. But offshore, I think those numbers can still come down probably by another factor of two, where perhaps in some years, the offshore will, be, will match the onshore uh, uh, cost. Uh, so that, that's what I think. I think in a few years, the offshore will go down, keep going down until it matches perhaps the onshore wind cost. Okay. Well, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you, uh, Charles, about these issues and uh, educating myself and hopefully the audience about uh, wind and how we can use it to come to a carbon-free economy. It looks like we are on a path that we can do it, and we just need to kind of start implementing it further, and and we will get there. Well, uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America. KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, your host, and we will be back next week. Uh, stay tuned. Thanks, Matt. All the best. Thank you very much, Charles. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968. 